From FX on Hulu comes Mrs. America, the highly anticipated drama that explores the dawn of the 1970s women's rights movement. Tune in as we explore the story of the Equal Rights Amendment's ratification and the unexpected backlash led by Phyllis Schlafly that forever shifted the political landscape. Starring an award-winning cast, including Kate Blanchett, Sarah Paulson, Uzo Aduba, and Elizabeth Banks. Mrs. America. New episodes Wednesdays, exclusively on FX on Hulu. Visit Hulu.com for more. Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why... I alone can fix it. The powers of the president are very substantial and will not be questioned. Iran is uh, a different place than when I took over. When I took over the United States. When I took over our military, we didn't have ammunition. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. President Trump added another step yesterday in his march toward authoritarianism. He tried. Good morning and welcome to Morning Joe. I mean, that's the important thing. He tried. And, you know, the thing is, he's done this before. And I know we we really differ here. I I know you're very, very concerned when he talks like that uh, about the Constitution and the country. I'm actually mainly concerned for his mental health and also the extraordinary. I feel very, very badly whenever he speaks that way, Willie, for uh, people at uh, Penn. Uh, who have to walk around in shame every day that he graduated from their college knowing no more about history or the Constitution or Madisonian democracy than he does. It's just, again, and he's just blathered for years. Article 2 gives me all the power I need. And then you'll have Trump apologists going, well, that's not exactly what he meant to say. And he just keeps going back to saying he has ultimate power as president of the United States. And he did it again yesterday. That was such a perfect snapshot of the Trump years because you had President Trump saying, yes, authoritarian, something that was authoritarian. We're not surprised he said that because as we just laid out, he said things like that over and over again. But the reason I say it's a perfect snapshot is a Republican, Mike Pence, a lifelong conservative, stepped to that podium and was asked the same question. Do you agree with the president's view that his power is absolute, that when someone is president of the United States, the authority is total? You could see him sort of swallow a bit and said, yes, the president's powers are, quote, plenary, which means they're unquestionable in this circumstance. So you had not only the president, but the enabling from the vice president. Yeah. Uh, Along with Joe Willie and me, we have MSNBC national affairs analyst, co-host of Showtime's The Circus and editor in chief of The Recount, John Heilman, big news and politics to talk about. And NBC News correspondent Carol Lee joins us as well. We're going to get to President Trump's campaign rally masks at, masked as a coronavirus briefing in just a moment and his claims of having total authority after a month of saying the states bear all the responsibility. Is anybody, and I have goes, no responsibility. It's the Constitution. Look at the Constitution. I can't I can't do any of this. It's a constitution. And then suddenly, it's so funny, Mickey, yesterday afternoon you called me up and you said, hey, uh, Cuomo is holding a press conference with the other governors and Trump's going to go crazy. Yeah. I go, what do you mean? He said, well, since he's given them the power, they're taking the power. And of course, they're going to figure out when to reopen uh, their their states. Uh, to economic They're working business, together to lead. Working together to lead. That always gets to him. Since he won't lead. And then yesterday he completely melted down and went, you know, full Orban. Yeah. Uh, and, and started yapping like an authoritarian wannabe. So we're also going to be covering the devastating impact the coronavirus is having on the crew of the oh, USS Roosevelt. Such a sad story. Almost 600 members of the 5,000 stationed aboard the Roosevelt have tested positive for COVID-19, and now a sailor has died from coronavirus-related complications. We'll talk about that.
And we're also following a huge story in the political world. In Wisconsin, a liberal challenger has defeated a Republican incumbent for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court of Victory that will have enormous implications for the November election. We will explain that ahead as well. But we begin with the coronavirus death toll in New York State, which has now surpassed 10,000 people. 671 New Yorkers died on Sunday, which is about 100 less than the day before. The state continues to edge closer to 200,000 virus cases as the dizzying death rate and hospitalizations trend downward. Governor Andrew Cuomo says the worst of this nightmare might be over, but will never be forgotten. 2,700 lives were lost in 9-11, and 9-11 changed every New Yorker who was in a position to appreciate on that day what happened. And the number of lives lost, uh, lives lost was horrific after 9-11, and the grief was horrific. And we are at 10,000 deaths. We can control the spread. Feel good about that. The worst is over. Yeah, if we continue to be smart going forward, because remember, we have the hand on that valve. You turn that valve too fast, you'll see that number jump right back. We're going to be talking to Governor Cuomo uh, in, in a little bit this morning. Uh, but Willie, uh, these, these, these counts are wildly inaccurate. Um, you had Dr. Gottlieb uh, tell Rich Lowry that our numbers are just as inaccurate as China's, maybe less so because uh, we don't have community-wide testing. So the numbers are wildly low when you look at the infections. But from what I've heard talking to healthcare officials, talking to New Yorkers, talking to reporters on this story, they all say the same thing. The death count is also dramatically uh, under undercounted because so many people are just dying in their homes that never get to the hospital, that don't want to go into the hospital. And we will never know. People can't get tested. We, we will never know uh, how, how many people uh, uh, are dying and have died from this disease. Without question, talk to any doctor in any city and they will tell you exactly what you just said, Joe, which is that, first of all, you and I both know people who've had it, but didn't get tested either because they couldn't get a test or they didn't want to waste a test on themselves when they knew sitting in their homes that they had it and they just wrote it out. So we know without testing, the numbers are exponentially higher. And also, as you say, the number of deaths, people who've been told not to go to the hospital, people who can't go to the hospital because they weren't showing certain signs, stayed home and died at home. We know that's something that they're looking at in New York in terms of the total number of deaths. And until we have testing, nationwide testing, we will never know. We will never know how many people have this. We will never be able to begin to get our arms around it. And we are nowhere close, as the president boasts about having the most raw number of tests in the world. Yes, two million or so. But in a country of 330 million people, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of the extent of this problem. So talking about going back to work when we have no idea who even has it in this country, only the number of people who've tested positive and there aren't any not enough tests. That's not enough and it won't be enough for a long time until we get testing. You know, uh, John Heilman, I don't know if as a young child you ever put your hand on a hot stove, but I can tell you. <laughs> For young children who did, who are, are, do you still do that? Perhaps you still do that. But I can tell oh, yeah. you. As, routinely, routinely. Yeah. In fact, that's why you're in the kitchen right now, um, because you just do it during Correct. the breaks just to make yourself feel alive. But anyway, as a young child who, who sticks their hand on a hot stove, um, most learn that apparently is not the case with some Trumpists in the media who are trying to hawk their books or want uh, people who are uh, a member of the most extreme elements of the Trump cult to go to their websites. Or whatever. Because a lot of the mistakes that these Trump apologists were making throughout January and February and March, saying that this was all overrated and uh, the coverage was a hoax or who was saying it's just like a flu, they stopped saying that, right? But when suddenly people started dying the way they started to die, they've 
they took their hand off the hot stove. We've been through a, a horrendous two or three weeks. Now some of them are starting mm. to put their hands on the hot stove again. Some of the very people, I don't even mention their names because I don't, I don't want to don't want to promote them. But they used to be important voices on the right. Some of them even worked in the Reagan administration. Now they're going back to the whole yarn that, oh, it's just the flu. It's just the flu. I wish that oh, all of these gosh. White House people and all of the Trump people that say it's just a flu. I'd love for them, if they really feel that way, to get all their family and all of their loved ones together. They can throw a huge party in a barn. They can invite a thousand other people and film it uh, if they really believe that. Of course, they're not going to do that. And I don't want them to do that because I actually care about whether Americans live or die from this coronavirus. Right. But it's hard for me, after all we've been through, to listen to somebody that used to have a shred of respect on the right say this is nothing more than the flu. And they're going back to that now. And they're starting to say, oh, see, look, it's not two million deaths. It's not 100,000 deaths. It's 60,000 deaths. Well, of course, that's right. the first wave. We don't know how many deaths will be. But this is not the flu. 25 people are dying right. here and, you know, veterans are getting wiped out there and 600 Navy uh, uh, shipmates uh, on, on the Roosevelt have it. This is a pandemic. And yet they keep going back for more. Some of them mm. on the same media outlets that got in trouble for lying to old people, to senior citizens, uh, to the infirmed the first time around. Right. It's sick and pathological, Joe. And, you know, we've seen it um, all throughout the Trump era, but the consequences were not as great as they are now. And I think it's one of the things that we have to really be concerned about right now, a combination of things. One of them is that, you know, if it, if it is the case that we end up with uh, the estimates turn out to be right, uh, that in this wave, at least, um, that we only end up with only, I say, only end up with 60,000 deaths instead of 100,000 deaths or 200,000 deaths. The, the missing link there is that the reason that will have happened is because of the extreme social distancing measures that were put in place. And so the, that's the lesson. The lesson is we right. shut the economy down. We shut down most of the states in the country. And it worked to flatten the curve in those right. places. Not that the virus wasn't as dangerous, as we said, but that we were able to affect it by taking these dramatic actions. But instead, some of the people you're talking about, and apparently it looks increasingly like the president of the United States, are going to say, hey, maybe this wasn't so bad after all. And now we can get yeah. back to get back to business. And, and that is going to be an incredibly dangerous scenario. We all agree that 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 Donald Trump does not have the the the, the power to open or close down the states, that those are states uh, within states authorities. But the reality is the president has enormous influence, especially with red state governors. And if those governors hear Donald Trump say, hey, it's time to open up for business, they're going to open up for business. And that could put at, at risk the lives of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans, because, of course, we do know we are all one country and it could hit those states harder, but it can affect all the other states, too. Absolutely. Well, and it could, Mika, it could not only put those people's lives at risk, and it will. It will. And as we as we heard yesterday, not just on the coasts, but in heartland America, where where for the most part in some rural communities, people are older and their health care systems are not as good because they, the funding has been gutted from Washington over the past five years. But Mika, also, the second part of that is the economy. I'm scared to death for small business owners who were told, OK, now you can open up your store. Ugh. Then the second wave comes. That would be hard to survive. And they get hammered. I don't know a single doctor that doesn't say some second wave is coming in the fall. Right. We don't know. How, we don't know how big it's going to be. Could be very bad. We have to prepare. Well, there are governors that are working on filling the void in leadership that the president left for them. States on the country's east and west coasts are forming regional pacts to coordinate reopening society from the stay-at-home orders each has issued. The first announcement came yesterday on the east coast, where New York Governor Cuomo said his state, along with New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts 
each plan to name a public health and economic official to help with the reopening plan. Each governor's chief of staff will also be a part of the group. Later in the day, California, Washington and Oregon also announced they would be joining forces to plan to ease stay-at-home restrictions. The group said they will study data and research from other countries in order to come up with a consistent plan. Wow. The governors made their announcements just hours after President Trump declared on Twitter that it is his decision to decide when to open up the states. Wonder if he heard about these uh, councils that are being set up and just felt very left out, adding that he is working closely with the states and that a decision would be made shortly. Then came the president's coronavirus press briefing. Wow, the longest and most combative to date, where he lashed out at the press, disputed reports that he was slow to respond to the pandemic, and then defended his claim to have broad executive authority over the states. What provision in the Constitution gives the president the power to open or close state economies? And then numerous uh, provisions will give you a legal brief if you want. States that have closed, ordered schools closed. It's been states that have ordered businesses like restaurants. That's because and I let that happen. Because I would have preferred that. I let that happen. But if I wanted to, I could have closed it up. The president of the United States has the authority to do what the president has the authority to do, which is very powerful. The president of the United States calls the shots. They can't do anything without the approval of the president of the United States. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The authority is total. total. You said when someone is president of the United States, their authority is total. That is not true. Who? who Okay. You you know what we're going to do? We're going to write up papers on this. It's not going to be necessary because the governors need us one way or the other, because ultimately, it comes with the federal government. That being said, we're getting along very well with the governors, and I feel very certain that uh, there won't be a problem. Has yeah, please, governor, go ahead. Has any governor agreed that you have the authority to decide when their state I haven't asked governor? anybody. Because no I don't, you know why? Because I don't have to. Go ahead, please. But who told you the president has the total authority? Enough. Please. Wow. Uh, There was a lot more melting down than we showed you there. Um, None of it had a lot of new information in it or news value. Well, there there was actually Uh, just let's be let's be let's be clear. No news coming from the president. Nothing new. But he was very upset, very out of whack, um, outside of himself and angry. It was a sad. He picked on reporters. There was this strange little video that on uh, taxpayers dollar on the White House's time, staff members actually edited together a video where sound bites were taken out of context and graphics were made to attack the media. This is what the president you know what is made making it special? his staff do you know what made it on special? coronavirus time. The sweeping sort of orchestra in the background that you play during campaign. <laughs> I'm watching this and I'm going, are you kidding me? No, this was sad. It's like taxpayers made a campaign ad for Donald Trump to air at this briefing. And then his top scientists were sitting there watching this video instead of doing what they need to do to save lives. So let's see. You've got your scientists at your two-hour press conferences. You won't invoke the Defense Production Act to actually coordinate something nationally and use your power. You won't do that. And then you say it's all on the governor. So the governors step up. They step up and they try and help. They step up to fill the void in leadership that you left wide open and that you told was on them. And now you're freaking out. This is truly pathetic, but sad for Americans who are struggling through this, who need so much more from the president of the United States and the White House, the people in the White House who work for him. Carol Lee, is there any information that you have heard as to what was behind this beyond the obvious, the governor's outshining the president of the United States? Well, part of it is that the, what the president is saying really fits what he wants his agenda to be, which is to open the economy. And what was so remarkable about yesterday is that for weeks, 
when governors were not issuing stay-at-home orders for, across their states, and there was concern, and there were calls for the president to issue a national stay-at-home recommendation, not even an order, the president was saying he didn't have the authority to tell the states what to do. And yesterday, and this was just a week before his press conference, I asked him this question, and he said, well, I don't, you know, it's the Constitution. It's the Constitution, but I can't do that. Um, and now we see him yesterday saying that he has absolute authority to tell the states what to do. Mm. And really, he's what he's trying to do here is, and we've seen this before, is bend the Constitution to, and use it as an as an excuse for what he wants to do, whatever that is. Um, you know, before it was that he didn't have the authority. Now that it is that he has the absolute authority. And what we've seen, as you guys have been talking about, is that while he was saying he didn't have, he couldn't come in and tell states what to do, he wasn't going to issue a recommendation, not even an order that they issued stay-at-home orders, that states took it upon themselves to basically cut him out. And he's not part of that conversation. And now he's in the situation where he desperately wants to have some sort of economic opening beginning on May 1st. And he needs governors to do for him what he actually doesn't have the authority to tell them to do because mm -hmm. he's so uh, determined to have some sort of economic opening on May 1st because he's worried, frankly, about what this is going to do to his election in November. You know, there, there are a couple of things that, speaking of November, there are a couple of things that actually upset the president. Uh, and, of course, the New York Times article this past weekend the, the list of, of the dates, all the receipts, all the president's uh, screw ups. There was a Washington Post, of course, article uh, from last week, 70 days of dithering. I forget the exact headline, mm -hmm. but it was 70 days of dithering. Also, Wisconsin, Willie, uh, uh, make no mistake of it. This is that. a president that feels the walls closing in. Uh, Pennsylvania is Biden country. Good luck in Scranton, Mr. President. Uh, good luck in the suburb Phillies. Uh, I'm sure the, uh, the suburbs of Pittsburgh also right now very concerned at, at your poor handling of this. Uh, he's insulted the governor of Michigan, who is wildly popular there, won't even call her by her name. Uh, and then in Wisconsin, we're going to get to those elections in a second. But, Willie, he kept talking about what he did on, on his toothless China ban at the end of January, which was pathetic. 40,000 people came in after that toothless ban. Um, but just really quickly, I'm just going to run down these quotes really quickly. On February 10th, he said uh, at the White House, we're in great shape. We have 12 cases, 11 cases, and many of them are in good shape now. Uh, on February 23rd, yeah, almost a full bad. month, Later, he said, we have it very much under control in this country. On February 24th, the coronavirus is very much under control in the USA. But on February 26th, we're at a low level. As they get better, we take them off the list. Pretty soon, we're going to be down to only five people. That was on February 26th. Of course, uh, we know now how many people have died in America. February 26th, he goes in again when you have 15 people and the 15 people within a couple of days is going to be down close to zero. That's a pretty good job that we've done. Close to zero. How many Americans have died of this now? How, I mean, 22,000, 20, 22,000. February 26th, uh, he said, we're going down, not up at a press conference. February 27th. <clears throat> He says it's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. That's February 27th. That's like a, almost a month after he said he claims that he's doing all of these great things with this toothless China ban. On March the 7th, he says, I'm not concerned at all. No, we've done a great job. I'm not concerned at all. On March the 10th, he said, we're doing a great job with it and it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away, Willie. And, and that was in that was in March. And, and yet, Willie, more people have died since then than died on 9-11, that died in both Iraq wars, that died in the Afghanistan war. And the president was saying late into February, quote, I'm not concerned at all. Yeah, Joe, we could read those quotes all morning. If you want to go back to late January on CNBC when the president of the United States said we have it totally under control. It's one person in China 
on February the 10th when he said, when the April weather comes, it's going to warm up and miraculously this thing will go away. There's no question that he downplayed this for months and months when we should have been ramping up testing, getting PPE into hospitals. That's just a fact. And none of that was in the campaign video that he played in the briefing room yesterday that left out effectively in the entire month of February, along with portions of March and some of that late January quotations that I mentioned. It wasn't there. And that entire briefing was a refutation of that New York Times piece, an attempted refutation of the New York Times piece that made him so angry. Here's an exchange with President Trump and a CBS reporter about all the quotes you just read, the ones I cited that were left out of that video. What did you do with the time that you bought? You know what the we month did? of February. That, you know what we did? What do you do? What do you do when you have no case in the whole United States? You had cases when in you, you excuse me, you reported it. Zero cases, zero deaths on January seventeenth. January, February, the entire January. Month of February. I said in January. On January thirtieth. What did your administration do in February for the time that your travel ban bought? A lot. What? A lot. And in fact, we'll give you a list. What we did, in fact, part of it was up there. It we did a lot. Look, look. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. Mika, that's what the president does when there is no good answer to that question. You bark down at the reporter, Paula Reed there of, of CBS. There is no answer. He put in that travel restriction, which, as Joe There's pointed out, answer. was full of holes and let 40,000 people or so back into the U.S. They did nothing in February. And therein lies the problem. And fundamentally there, guys, when he says we had zero deaths, we had no problem, what would you have done? Well, the entire point of this, as Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have said, is to continue on that trajectory, not to take your foot off the gas, to look at those numbers and say, OK, we're good. Next problem. No, no. You put in place these policies that keep the number low. You don't put in one toothless travel ban and walk away. Well, and, and, and Carol Lee, you have also, of course, it's interesting it's a CBS reporter because when was it, a month ago, a month and a half ago, when a CBS reporter was talking to Kellyanne Conway about this? Mm. And Kellyanne Conway said it's, uh, it's contained. Are you a doctor? And started yelling at her and said it's contained. It's completely contained. And then, of course, it exploded. The same time Larry Kudlow said that uh, the coronavirus was contained. And now 20,000 deaths later, uh, here we find ourselves with the president wanting to pretend that the month of February didn't happen. Yeah, Joe, and he's really just hung on to this China ban. And as you pointed out, there were a number of holes in the, the travel ban that he initiated early on in January. And and the problem is, and the, and when the president they showed this video yesterday in the briefing room, um, they quoted Maggie Haberman of the New York Times doing a, a, an interview with a podcast saying that talking about the effectiveness of this ban on China, what they cut out, and she was right about this, is that what she said was that the president acted as if this was his mission accomplished moment, and he's mm -hmm. really just zeroed in on that, and it completely ignored everything else that could have been done and should have been done in the weeks after that. And so every time we're in these briefings and he's confronted with what he didn't do, he always reverts back to this ban on travel to China. And yes, it was important, but it wasn't the only thing that he should have done and could have done. And, and you know, you could create an entire other video of all of those quotes that you, you all just mentioned um, that would paint a dramatically different picture. And the president, what he's trying to do is what he always does when he feels backed into a corner. And I think the exactly. question is, is whether that's going to work this time. And it doesn't seem like it is. Definitely. Uh, Carol Lee, thank you so much. You definitely saw the, uh, the president backed into a corner yesterday, and you see what happens. I mean, he just starts talking about all of his power and acts like a little baby, uh, to use his language. Uh, I just want to read a tweet before we go to break. Uh, Liz Cheney felt the need to tweet uh, yesterday evening, the federal government does not have absolute power. And then she quoted from the Constitution, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. <clears throat> and uh, I think the president really uh, at this point 
is going to find that he's going to hit a wall if he thinks that he's king of America. I mean, it's not how it works. I, I wonder if Donald Trump uh, knows. I don't wonder. That's a rhetorical question, whether that's the Tenth Amendment. I actually had that hanging outside of my office at 127 Cannon House office building. So it's good to know that there's some Republicans who actually still believe that. Still ahead on Morning Joe, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, joins us. But first, we reported on the USS Theodore Roosevelt last week after its commanding officer was fired for warning about the coronavirus spreading on board his ship. Now a sailor is dead and some 600 are sickened with the virus. We'll talk to retired four-star Admiral James Tavridis next on Morning Joe. It is being contained. And do you not think it's being contained in this I'm country? I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. Well, but you said, it, you said it's not being contained. So are you a doctor or a lawyer when you say it's not being contained? That's the false. Virus you just said something that's not true. Hey, everyone. It's Tremaine Lee, MSNBC correspondent and host of the new podcast, Into America. In our latest episode, we go to Nashville, Seattle, and all over the Internet to see just how creative some people are getting to keep the music going. What happens when gigs are canceled, clubs are closed, and school concerts are called off? When people listen to music, they're feeling the emotions and the closeness of somebody else, even if they can't be in the same space as them. Coronavirus is keeping us home, but as you'll hear, it can't stop the music. The importance of music is to keep our spirits up. We're in this situation and, in my opinion, may as well make the best of it. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to Morning Joe. A sailor assigned to the aircraft carrier USS Roosevelt has died from coronavirus-related complications. The Navy announced that news yesterday. It is the first death of a sailor from the virus-stricken carrier that was forced to dock in Guam last month. The Navy said it was also the first virus-caused death of an active service member. In all, nearly 600 members of the 5,000 stationed aboard the Roosevelt have tested positive for COVID-19. All have been removed from the ship and are now living in isolated quarters on Guam. Four were hospitalized over the weekend, but none in intensive care. You'll remember the outbreak led to the removal of Captain Brett Crozier after his letter demanding action from the Navy was leaked to the press. Shortly thereafter, Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley resigned after he cost taxpayers a quarter of a million dollars to fly to the ship to insult Captain Crozier to his own crew. Joining us now, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, retired four-star Navy Admiral James Stavridis. He is Chief International Security and Diplomacy Analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Admiral Stavridis, it's great to have you on. You have commanded a carrier strike group yourself. You know what it's like to lead a group of men aboard a ship like this. It seems to me that the death we saw yesterday is exactly what Captain Crozier was worried about, what he warned about, and what he was fired for. That's exactly right, Willie. And let's let's first, why is this? And why do we have 600 sailors? That's 10% of the crew. So think of that adjusted nationally for the United States. That would be as though the United States had uh, somewhere around 35 million cases. We've got about 500,000. So the carrier is full of COVID-19. Why is that? I'd invite everybody to think about your kitchen at home, say a nice suburban kitchen, except think of it with 15 people living in it. They're packed in there. Our sailors are in these birthing compartments, which turn into places where coronavirus simply multiplies. Captain Crozier knew that. He saw that coming. I believe he first went to the chain of command. He didn't get sufficient action from all I can see. We'll have an investigation that'll tell us exactly what happened. But then he did what I think a commanding officer should do. He put the welfare and safety of his crew first because we are not at war. If we were at war, we would fight through it, would fight with 10 percent of the crew ill. We could do that. We're not at war. The captain made the right call pushing the Navy to take that ship offline. It is a tragedy that that sailor died, but everything that has happened, in my view, validates what Captain Crozier attempted to do. 
Admiral, obviously he was making that plea, Captain Crozier, when it went public out of desperation because he didn't think he was getting the support he needed up the chain of command, as you point out. As you look back on it, should he have acted any differently at all? Obviously, uh, <laughs> Acting Secretary Modley flew halfway around the world to board that ship and do what he thought I think the President Trump would want him to do. It turned out he was wrong about that in trashing the captain who was beloved by his crew, who was cheered as he left the ship after being released of his command. Did Captain Crozier do anything wrong in your view as someone who has commanded one of these ships yourself? I want to see the results of the investigation that tell us exactly what relief was offered to Captain Crozier before he launched that uh, missile of a letter. And should he have kept that in classified channels? Yes, I think he should have. Should he have had a narrow distribution of that letter strictly to his chain of command? Yes, he should have. In desperation, instead of a broadly released letter, he could have picked up the phone and called the chief of naval operations and called the secretary of the Navy. Instead, he took a very public push. He must have felt that that was what was required to keep his crew safe. So I think he would probably say, Look, I took those chances. I knew my career was at risk, but I did what I felt I had to do for my crew. And, you know, when I see that video of hundreds, if not thousands, of his crew members cheering him as he left the ship, I think that that's a commanding officer who can walk off T.R. Roosevelt, legacy of President Roosevelt, with his head held high. And now we know nearly um, 600 sailors aboard that ship have it, Joe, and uh, one of them has died. Joe? Good yeah, and so, so, Admiral, uh, let's just look at the, this crisis that we're facing. There's obviously a lack of leadership uh, coming out of the White House, uh, and I, I think even uh, many of Donald Trump's own supporters would agree with that. It's just it's been erratic, uh, frightening how we lost uh, well over a month in February as as we've gone through the timeline. But every scientist, every doctor says we can expect this to reemerge uh, in the fall. Uh, you have been in charge of leading uh, so many men and women. Uh, you've been in charge of logistics. Uh, tell me, Admiral, how would you handle this crisis Starting today, planning for not only to reopen uh, the country, but also to look forward to the fall and prepare for the second wave of this pandemic. Uh, Joe, first and foremost, I would uh, emphasize what we've all been talking about, which is a national level campaign of testing until we can open our eyes literally and see what's in front of us with some certainty, we're not going to make the right choices. So first and foremost is testing. Secondly, keep the foot on the pedal of treatment so that we can have palliatives. That's the key to reopening the country is the testing regime coupled with a treatment regime. Then you put it in a rolling wave. And it is like a military campaign. You have to have goals. You have to have timelines. You're going to move regionally and safely. And then uh, third and finally, I would encourage leadership to be thinking about what can the military do in this? We've seen just the edge of that with comfort and mercy, some deployments of our National Guard. Uh, Joe, as you know, there are 1.2 million young men and women, all volunteers, predisposed to serve others in the military today. There are 800,000 reservists. It's an enormous force. If we were thinking now about that second wave, we could think coherently about how we could employ all of that uh, to help us in what I think is almost inevitably a second wave, but one that we will be vastly better prepared to deal with. So, Admiral, finally, um, obviously, the people who consider us, countries who consider themselves to be enemies of the United States of America uh, are going to look for weaknesses, are going to look... Uh, possibly to attack us in weak spots when we are down. What's the greatest national security threat other than this pandemic uh, that you would be telling the president to be prepared for? You know, the conventional answer to that would be watch out for China, which seems to have made the turn more swiftly than we have. 
coming out of this, although we can't really trust their numbers. But I'll tell you what I would watch for. I would watch for cyber and a cyber attack for two reasons. One is we're constantly vulnerable in this zone. But now, as so many of our businesses, our economic mm-hmm. processes, our military activities, indeed, are shifting over into the cybersphere as we put everything online, creates a new vulnerability. It won't just be China. Russia's very good. Iran, quite capable. North Korea, not bad. Watch for cyber as a threat based on the way we're shifting the economy at the moment. All right. Retired four-star Admiral James Tabridis, thank you so much. And coming up, President Trump insists he alone can reopen the country. Eugene Robinson says a different group has the power, we the people. We will read from Gene's new column just ahead on And we're going to be talking about that Wisconsin result that has really shocked the White House. And uh, people obviously looking forward to the 2020 election. Hey guys, Willie Geist here. This week on the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast, music superstar Sheryl Crow. Her journey from a small town in Missouri to the top of the music world. Get the podcast now for free wherever you download yours. Last week, the Republican-led Wisconsin legislature, backed by conservative majority courts, forced the state to hold an election in the middle of a national health emergency, a pandemic. Joe Biden ended up winning the state over Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, but it's the result of another race that is most notable. Liberal challenger Jill Karofsky defeated Republican incumbent Daniel Kelly for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Despite President Trump's endorsement of Kelly with 90 percent of the returns counted, Karofsky led Kelly by more than 100,000 votes and about seven percentage points. The result narrows to a 4-3, the conservative majority on the nonpartisan Wisconsin Supreme Court with the next seat up for election in 2023. The court is expected soon to decide a case that seeks to purge more than 200,000 people from Wisconsin's voter rolls. The Republican Party of Wisconsin issued a statement yesterday saying they are disappointed in Kelly's loss and accused Democrats of attempting to rig the election. Oh, I'm, their favorite. I'm sorry. John Heilman. Uh, Are you serious? John, John, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, in the immortal yeah. words of Forrest mm. Gump, stupid is as stupid yeah. does. And in this case, stupid, uh, that would be the Wisconsin Republican Party, uh, forced people to go out and vote in the middle of a t- pandemic, believing that it would uh, lower turnout and would elect... Right. A Republican, so they could uh, purge uh, voter rolls. Now, with one conservative voting with uh, the two liberals uh, in that three to three deadlock case, now we have that ramification that that voting rights case uh, actually may favor the voters and maybe there won't be that massive voter purge that Republicans in Wisconsin wanted to do. But also, man, you look at Kenosha. If Tim Russert were alive, he'd say 2020 is about Wisconsin, 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 more specifically, Kenosha, Kenosha, Kenosha. Hmm. And Kenosha went big for the Democrats' candidate. Yeah, I mean, Joe, I'd say, you know, not just stupid is as stupid does, but stupider does is as stupider does. And in this case, stupider was Donald Trump. I think, you know, you may remember on the Friday before the scheduled Wisconsin election, Donald Trump at the Daily White House briefing, the the show that we look at every day, he got up and said that the reason that the governor wanted to cancel or postpone the election was because he, Donald Trump, had that day uh, endorsed in a very strong way uh, Daniel Kelly, the Republican who was in that Supreme Court uh, election. 
uh, the, for, the, for the chief justice. And Trump, of course, made the totally implausible claim that day that he had endorsed him that morning and that his poll numbers had already shot through the roof over the course of the subsequent three or four hours since he issued the endorsement, another total inanity from Donald Trump. But that was his position. I endorsed this guy today. His poll numbers shot through the roof. And now the governor wants to shut down this election. Well, it turns out that he, the governor did, in fact, try to postpone the election on grounds of public health. The Wisconsin Republicans in the, in the state legislature and in the Supreme Court uh, roll over that, that order from Governor Evers. They held the election. And lo and behold, look what happened. Donald Trump's endorsement uh, didn't turn out to uh, keep that, that Supreme Court seat in Republican hands. In fact, the opposite thing has happened. And as you just pointed out, with this new uh, Democrat, Jill Kargofsky, on the court mm -hmm. and the one conservative justice siding with liberals on this voter purge question, you now have a functional 4-3 majority to not do the purge. And that purge, 200,000 names on the voter rolls that are at stake in that purge, that could be the difference between Republicans and Donald Trump. Let's be specific. That could be the difference between Donald Trump winning in Wisconsin this November and losing in Wisconsin this November, probably the most important state uh, in the election this November. This this could turn out to be the decisive thing that keeps Republicans from being able to steal this election in Wisconsin. We now have a chance to not have that voter purge take place and to have something that approximates a fair election in Wisconsin. It's a huge moment right now. This thing backfired in the most dramatic way possible, not just on Republicans, but on Donald Trump himself. So, John, let's talk about November. We know in 2016, the spread was less than 23,000 votes that gave that state to Donald Trump over yes, Hillary Clinton. If you look at turnout last week and we got the results in last night that we saw the, the new justice headed for a 10 year term to the Supreme Court, the progressive justice unseating a yep. Scott Walker appointed <laughs> President Trump backed conservative justice there. But what about turnout there in Milwaukee, for example, 180 polling places were taken down to five polling places. People lined up for yeah. hours in the rain, in the cold during a pandemic to vote. What does the turnout in that primary tell you about what we may see in that critical state in November. Well, I mean, look, we're, it's going to be impossible, Willie, to judge anything on the basis of the, 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 the that that primary, given the unusual circumstances, so many voters who decided to stay away from the polls for reasons of their health. But even in those in, in that environment, even in that environment, you saw this overwhelming Democratic turnout in the state of Wisconsin. Relatively speaking, the turnout right. was not as high as it would have been if it wasn't for the fact that it was taking place in a pandemic. But the fact that Democrats were able to these 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 the, the Democrats haven't won a judicial election to that Supreme Court in a long time. And it's it's the case that that what if you can't help but look at the fact that so many Democrats were given this unpalatable choice between protecting their, their, their personal safety and their public health and exercising their right to vote. And they decided to go out and do it anyway. And you saw a lopsided victory uh, in that race, which was so important. Uh, and you saw it across the state. So, you know, uh, I, I think that if you if you're Republicans looking at uh, the state of affairs coming out of this truncated uh, Democratic primary season, what we've seen in January, February, March, and now into April, uh, as most of these primary elections and elections have now been postponed in other states, there's nothing since March, since the end of Fe since February into March and now April, there's nothing you can look at if you're a Republican in the way the Democratic primaries have played out and not be nervous about the fact that Democrats are incredibly energized, incredibly fired up. And you can't help but think that President Trump's performance in this pandemic is only going to raise the stakes on this election and drive Democratic uh, engagement even higher. You know, we've been saying it for some time now, those those presidential briefings every day actually damage Donald Trump's brand, damages his poll numbers. Totally. Uh, and and, and uh, if you're in Pittsburgh, uh, if you're in the su uh, suburbs of Philly and you're worried about your parents or grandparents getting this, if if you're in Florida in central Florida, uh, where there's so many senior citizens and you're worried about your mom or dad getting this or your grandparents getting this and you see that uh, that uh, farce going on in the White House yesterday for over two hours, a president who doesn't once talk about his concern for the sick, his concern for the dying, uh, but instead just of course, talks about himself. Uh, it, 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 it's going to be devastating for poll numbers. And Mika, 
you can look at what happened in Wisconsin and who knows what's going to happen in the fall. But I but, but look at what happened in Wisconsin. Look what happened in 2019 special elections. Look at the historic landslide in the House in 2018. Look at what happened in 2017. Donald Trump uh, has, it seems, has lost just about every critical race that he could lose. And, and even when Republicans win, they seem to be underperforming in dramatic, sometimes historic fashion that happened again yeah. yesterday, as we've been saying for a very long tr time, Donald Trump is toxic to the Republican brand. You look at, I, I um, know we have to go, but yeah. I'm sorry, John Heilman, Alex is going to yell at me, but I just, I have to bring this up. I, I was reading yeah. uh, the Banger uh, newspaper yesterday and saw that um, Susan Collins is sitting with a 37% approval rating in Maine, a 54% disapproval in Maine. This is, a, yes. Trump is just yes. absolutely destroying her chances, whether you look at from, from Maine to Arizona. This guy is toxic. Yes. I mean, look, Joe, you just made the point. The reality is that uh, whatever you think uh, of the, the strength of Donald Trump's base and everything that we talk about in terms of how he's been able to maintain the loyalty of the core group that support him, the reality is that in 2017, 2018, 2019, and now into 2020, every time voters have had a chance to, to try to, send a, to, to vote in a proxy contest, which is what all of these are now, every election is about Donald Trump. Um, and in every instance, the, the voting, the electorate is basically saying we want to cast our vote against Donald Trump and, and measured in every yeah. possible way empirically. Uh, you've seen it now for three and a half years. It's the and, and you often say on the show that people say, well, Trump doesn't pay a price for all of his uh, his lies and all of his misgovernment and all of the things that we say that he does wrong. But he has paid a price yeah. and Republican yeah. Party has paid a price consistently now for three and a half years. And I think it's, you know, it's it's it just if I'm a Republican right now, I'm looking at this Faustian bargain I've made with Trump. And I'm thinking to myself, like Susan Collins must be, oh my God, the, the piper is about to come to get paid here in November. And it's going to be, it potentially could be very, very ugly. Again, in the, in the previous Trump scandals, um, uh, John Hellman, the, the proof was redacted, rebranded, didn't really touch the American people or his people. But now... Right. The proof is in the suffering that people are feeling today. The proof is in the death toll. And you can't hide that. John Hellman, thank you very much. And by the way, Mika, the proof every day is in the testing that millions no and testing. millions of no Americans can get cannot get. And yet they see the president of the United States lying every day saying, remember March 6th, the president yeah. said, if you want a test, you can get a test. That's the same day, by the way, one. Kellyanne Conway said this was contained. March 6th, also the same day that Larry Kudlow said this was contained. Yeah. But that's when the president had his his campaign hat on and he said, if you want a test, you can get a test. Here we are in the middle of April. Millions and millions of Americans still cannot get a and test. They can see it for themselves. So uh, coming up, we're going to have Dr. Dave Campbell joining us. He's taking a look at what's going on in nursing homes across the country. Also ahead, the pre-existing condition in the Oval Office, how the Trump administration's war on science made the nation vulnerable to this public health crisis. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? I'll be talking with computational biologist Carl Bergstrom about what we do and don't know about the coronavirus. Once these things get out there, and this is kind of sort of a key aspect of misinformation and disinformation, is that once they're out there, they really take off and they spread. And so Jonathan Swift uh, said several hundred years ago that falsehood flies and truth comes limping after. And, and that's what happens on the internet, of course. So there's a more recent version of this, which is known as uh, Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle. And it says the amount of work that it takes to clean up bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than the amount of work it takes to create it. So we definitely see that sort of thing happening with all kinds of conspiracy theories, including this one around the virus. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.